Hello and welcome. My name is Dr. Raj Pasord. I'm a consultant doctor and psychiatrist based in Harley Street, London, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Christian List. Professor Christian List is a professor of philosophy and decision theory at a university called LMU Munich and is a visiting professor of philosophy at the London School of Economics and Political Science and a fellow of the British Academy. And Christian List has written this wonderful uh, new book just been published called Why Free Will is Real. And this is about a famous debate in philosophy about free will, about whether we have free will, whether we're autonomous individuals who are free to make our own decisions. And the reason why I was very interested to talk to a Professor List about this book and the free will debate is I've always found it amazing that psychiatry, psychology and medicine do not discuss the free will debate more or it's not part of the curriculum. Yet the notion that our patients have free will and freely make a decision, let's say to drink excessively or make some bad decisions is at the heart of psychiatry and psychology. So Christian, let me start by asking you to just outline uh, what is free will? What is the free will debate? Yes, on a first gloss, free will is simply um, a person's ability to choose and control their own actions. Um, so for example, um, uh, you presumably freely chose to invite me uh, to join this uh, podcast, um, or I freely chose to accept the invitation this morning to give a more trivial example. Um, I had a choice between whether to have coffee and tea for breakfast and it so happened that I chose uh, a coffee, but I could have chosen a tea instead. And uh, that's a very simple example of what we take to be a free decision. Now we make these decisions all the time. Um, our lives are full of such free uh, choices. Um, and we also like to think that um, we have free will when we uh, make decisions on much more major issues, such as um, which uh, career to try to pursue or whether to get married or not, um, and so on. And the free will problem is basically the question of how we can make sense of this uh, notion of free will against the background of a scientific worldview um, where the world um, is at least at some fundamental level governed by the laws of nature. And the title of your book, why free will is real suggests um, implicitly that the conventional view in philosophy, neuroscience and, and science in general is that we don't have free will. It sounds to me from the title of your book and the, the ethos of it, you're mounting an argument a little bit like a rear guard action as it were, uh, a, a, an unpopular view perhaps, and this may come as a surprise to people, that maybe the conventional accepted view is that we don't have free will. Is that, is that right? Well, here I would draw a distinction between um, science and philosophy. Um, as far as um, some of the sciences are concerned, especially some circles uh, within neuroscience, um, the view that um, uh, free will is an illusion or that the idea of free will is a leftover from a pre-scientific way of thinking, that kind of view um, is becoming more and more influential. And if you now, um, browse through the popular science section of a large bookshop, or you um, flick through popular science magazines, you will come across plenty of articles uh, arguing um, on the basis of certain neuroscientific findings, for instance, that there is no such thing as free will. And on the other hand, um, if you um, consider 
philosophy, and in particular, if you speak to professional philosophers, um, then the picture is more mixed. And I would say that the mainstream view among professional philosophers um, is um, what is called a compatibilist view, um, which basically asserts that free will is compatible um, with a broadly scientific uh, picture of the world, including deterministic laws of nature and, and so on. Um, so philosophers have actually uh, spent a lot of time uh, trying to defend the compatibility of free will um, with the kinds of things that the sciences um, teach us. But at the same time, there is also um, a uh, at least substantial um, school of thought in, in philosophy, uh, which is sometimes called incompatibilism, um, and especially uh, something called hard incompatibilism, uh, which asserts that, uh, in fact, um, we, we don't have free will because there are um, some fundamental conflicts between free will and the one hand, um, and some features of um, the laws of nature on, on the other hand. And we can talk in more detail about what those features uh, are. So in terms of everyday, what we might call folk experience, my everyday conscious experience of myself and, and my journey through the world, the conventional lay or folk view would be that we seem to experience a certain amount of free will. My experience is that I make a decision to go and have coffee today. Um, I, I, I'm aware of the fact that I, my freedom is constrained, like I, I don't really want to go to work, let's say, but I do go to work because I have to pay the rent. But I'm aware of the fact that in certain extreme situations, like a, there's a train crash reported and it looks hazardous to go to work, I've made the decision not to go to work. So the, the everyday experience of people is of free will. Um, so I want to start with that point. Do, do, you, do you accept that point? And that is why, to some extent, we have an emotional attachment to the idea of free will, because it's also necessary for everyday um, interactions with people. So um, uh, my, 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 my son does something irritating. I assume by berating him or getting angry with him that um, he made a free decision to do this irritating thing. If I accepted he had no free will, there's no point getting angry with people or even engaging with them to some extent over some of the decisions they make. So I just wanna focus on what everyone's everyday experience is and the implications of that for everyday actions. Could you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right uh, about this. Um, there, there's a very strong intuition that we have free will. We um, um, take ourselves to have free will when we make choices. Um, and um, this uh, intuition of free will um, is uh, shared by um, a, a very large number of people, even if um, you, um, uh, ask uh, relatively young children, you can already get some evidence of free will intuitions. Um, so I think that's a kind of um, very uh, widely accepted um, point about um, um, human phenomenology um, that is uh, you know, shared across different age groups, across different um, cultures and, and so on. Um, and I also um, agree with you that uh, as far as day-to-day uh, -day interactions are concerned, um, free will is a very central um, idea uh, behind our human self-understanding. Uh, it's not just that we take ourselves to um, have free will when we make choices, but uh, it's also that uh, we take our fellow humans to have free will when they make their choices. And it's on that basis uh, that we um, 
view them as genuine choice-making agents, that we hold them accountable for what they do, that we uh, praise them and blame them. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it's quite clear that uh, this mode of relating to one another um, would at the very least be under some kind of intuitive pressure if we um, were for forced to give up the idea that we have free will. So I'm going to come back to a point later on. I'm going to mount an argument that the problem with the proponents of free will is that they don't really describe what free will actually would look like. But is not one of the problems for the people who are against free will is that one of their major deficits, in my opinion, I'm interested in your reaction to this, is they don't describe how to conduct everyday life if you assume there is no free will. What do you then do? Um, with everyday ordinary behavior. How are you, that seems to be a big yawning chasm. The scientists and the neuroscientists who think um, we don't have free will, but it's all determined by let's say neuronal impulses or our genes. How do they explain how we're meant to conduct everyday life in the absence of free will or the absence of that assumption? Or are there some scientists or neuroscientists or philosophers who give an account of how to live life if we just assume everyone around us isn't free to make the decisions they make? Yeah, so my, my own view is that um, it would be extremely difficult um, to um, go about one's day-to-day -day life and to engage in ordinary deliberation and decision-making if we didn't take ourselves to have free will. In fact, this is a point that um, the philosopher Immanuel Kant already um, uh, recognized uh, centuries ago. Um, uh, now, for this reason, I also think um, that... Um, those radical free, skeptic, free will skeptics who think that there is no such thing as free will, um, they end up in some kind of cognitive dissonance. Um, so perhaps in their professional lives and in their journalistic or academic writings, they um, produce arguments to the effect that there is no free will. But uh, I imagine that um, when they uh, conduct their day-to-day -day lives and interpersonal interactions with their friends and families and so on, um, at least implicitly, they uh, also rely on certain free will intuitions, uh, whether or not they like to admit it. Um, now, um, uh, of course, um, it's not uh, rare for there to be certain illusions uh, that people nonetheless cling to. Um, I mean, the human condition is also full of illusions that, that we are nonetheless uh, attached to and that we sustain for, for certain purposes. Um, but. Um, given the absolute centrality of uh, free will to our human self-understanding, um, it would be at least uh, rather dis unsatisfactory from an intellectual perspective um, if uh, you know, such a central presupposition turned out um, to be an illusion. Um, uh, and for this reason, I think some uh, free will skeptics might say, well, it's a sort of illusion and an inconvenient uh, truth and we'll just try to not make it uh, too salient because uh, if it became salient and widely known uh, all sorts of things might uh, might might break down um, uh, but there is something intellectually very dishonest about this kind of approach um, and uh, I, I think uh, we should um, uh, honestly and uh, uh, with uh, tackle the free will problem with intellectual sincerity and which should really uh, go to the conclusions uh, that, that are supported by, by the best arguments. Um, but I also uh, 
uh, have come to the conclusion, as I'm hopefully get a, uh, as I'll hopefully get a chance to explain, uh, that that we do in fact have free will, and that uh, uh, free will can be defended uh, against those skeptical arguments. Okay, so let's go first of all to the argument against free will. There are many arguments against it, but I want to focus on the one to do with determinism. That we live in a deterministic universe. That science says when things happen, they don't just happen. There's a reason they happen. There's a causal chain and the power of science is precisely partly based on this assumption that we don't say as the as the ancients say what why why is it raining today god decided it rained science um says no it, these things don't just happen there's a reason and we examine physical laws and how nature operates and it becomes extremely powerful um using supercomputers we can then predict tomorrow with a fair degree of accuracy not perfect accuracy whether it rains tomorrow. So the, 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 we're surrounded by the benefits of science and the power of science. And science is founded on the idea that there's causality and determinism. Stuff just doesn't happen. There's a reason it happens. So could you say something about that as, as being, as I understand it, one of the main arguments against free will? Because if you accept determinism, then the argument is, we made a decision to have coffee today. We didn't just make that decision. There was a reason we made that decision. And if we could examine with the right, right powerful enough brain scanner, we could unpack the causal chain. And it didn't just start magically with my decision. I, I may feel I have the illusion of free will, but actually I was along for the ride. My brain made the decision and made me believe I made the decision but there is no free will because we live, live in a causally determined universe. Could you say something about that? Yeah, this is the um, line of attack that uh, is uh, quite prominent and influential now. And, and I would begin by um, decomposing this line of attack into um, three distinct challenges for, for free will. Um, and I think it's useful to, um, uh, to keep them apart. Um, so I think um, free will, um, uh, when it is carefully defined, requires um, three things. Um, first of all, it requires intentional agency. So only those kinds of entities or beings or systems that are intentional agents um, uh, are even candidates for having um, free will. Um, you and I are intentional agents, and for this reason, we are candidates for having free will. Um, a chimpanzee um, is also um, an intentional agent not quite with the same cognitive capacities, but so for this reason, it's a meaningful question to ask whether a chimpanzee might have free will. At the same time, um, my washing machine is not an intentional agent and uh, it that does not even begin to qualify as a, uh, as a bearer of free will. So intentional agency is the first requirement. A second requirement is um, um, having alternative possibilities to choose from um, so this is this uh, famous uh, idea that um, unless uh, uh, it was possible for me to do otherwise when I made a particular choice, my choice wasn't free. Unless uh, it was possible for me to also choose tea this morning, for instance, my choice for coffee wouldn't qualify as a, as a free choice. Um, and then finally, the third requirement um, uh, is... Uh, causal control over our actions. This is sometimes also called mental causation. So here the idea is that um, in order to have free will, um, my um, intentional mental state that I have as an agent must be the cause of my action um, 
it's not uh, sufficient that some underlying perhaps subconscious, sub-intentional physical state of my brain um, caused the action. So these are the three requirements for free will as I see it. And now the scientific challenge um, that, that you um, summarized um, uh, takes a sort of subtly different um, form depending on which of the three requirements you focus on. Um, so there is uh, one line of reasoning that suggests that um, the entire notion of intentional agency uh, is somehow an illusion and that uh, science establishes allegedly uh, that there is no such thing as intentional agency in the world. Instead, there are just law governed physical processes and the whole idea of intentional agency is somehow a leftover from a pre-scientific version of folk psychology. Um, a second um, uh, subspecies of the scientific challenge um, uh, is what I would call the challenge from determinism. I think that's perhaps the challenge that you focused on most. Uh, uh, this says that um, uh, if the underlying laws of nature in fundamental physics, for instance, um, are deterministic, uh, then um, uh, it will be the case that um, the initial state of the universe, let's say at the time of the Big Bang, together with the laws of nature, was sufficient to predetermine everything that was going to happen uh, thereafter, including all the subsequent human actions um, uh, and, and choices, so that again, there'd be no room uh, uh, for, for, for free choice with alternative possibilities. And then the third uh, scientific uh, challenge or scientifically motivated challenge um, targets this idea of causal control over our actions. This I would call the challenge from epiphenomenalism. So here the idea is that you know, whenever we humans do something, um, uh, the, the cause of uh, the action is some underlying physical process uh, of the brain and body uh, rather than the intentional mental state. Um, and uh, then for this reason, we'd have to say it was really my brain that made me do it uh, rather than you know, myself as a, as a free agent who, who made the choice. So these are the three, um, uh, I, I would say, paradigmatic scientific challenges for free will. And each of them requires a somewhat uh, different um, response, obviously, um, because they focus on different um, aspects of, of free will. And what I've tried to do in, um, uh, in my uh, book uh, is to um, uh, not just argue against these uh, negative arguments, but rather to uh, develop a positive constructive case for the claim that humans do indeed have intentional agency alternative possibilities to choose from and causal control over their actions. And I mean, I'm happy, of course, to comment a bit more on, on uh, some or all of these, uh, but yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll let you choose uh, which of the uh, three requirements for free will uh, you, you're most interested in for, for the moment. Well, one of the things I'm most interested in, and obviously we, we haven't got time, I'm afraid, to go through all the different arguments, and it's a fascinating book that you've written, um, and it's a very comprehensive um, deconstruction of the free will debate done very succinctly. Um, but I want to focus a bit on reductionism, um, the notion, because that's at the heart of the scientific attempt to understand human behavior and part of the critique and the collision between psychologists and psychiatrists. Um, so you have groups of people doing brain scanning research or doing genetics research, um, and there are groups of people, and there's a lot of conflict within the field, um, who think that is overly reductionistic. But um, the, 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 
the scientific advances in the rest of medicine um, have been um, uh, based on reductionism. The, the idea that in order to understand diabetes, we have to understand the pancreas and molecular genetics and so on has proved very, very powerful and fruitful, but it hasn't appeared so far to have been so powerful or fruitful when it comes to human behavior. So it seems to me that your book is fascinating because it's slap bang in the middle of this debate and proposes an explanation, which is that, to borrow an example from your book, if we understand, I want to understand why there's inflation out there in society, would we go back to, to, to molecules and atoms? Although molecules and atoms support the structures, i.e. human beings and money supply and so that explains inflation, that would be the wrong place to look. And a lot of people in, in psychology and psychiatry think that psychologists and psychiatrists who are looking at brain scanning research are looking in the wrong place in an attempt to understand human behavior. Um, the right place to look would be interest rate movement. So one of the points you're making in your book is we've got to look in the right place. And as systems become more complicated, new forms of causality emerge out of that complexity. And we've got to look in the right place and in a way, I think what you're arguing is that the free will debate is still open because reductionism is the wrong place to look to explain some behavioral phenomena or our decisions. I mean, if I've captured that correctly, let me know. What are your, what's, what are your thoughts about that point? Yeah, I think that's a very fair summary of my uh, general approach. Um, so um, I um, would argue that... Um, one of the uh, big mistakes that many free will skeptics um, uh, make um, is to um, look for free will and its prerequisites um, at a uh, level of description or a level of analysis um, that is inappropriate and it, at which we don't find those phenomena. So just to explain this in a bit more uh, detail, um, uh, different phenomena that we want to explain and understand require a very different level of description. If we are interested in um, um, subatomic uh, particles and uh, their um, uh, properties and, and, and behavior, then of course, a level of description such as the one we find in quantum mechanics is entirely appropriate. Um, if we are interested in um, uh, the molecular underpinnings of uh, biological processes, of physiological processes, then once again, um, uh, a um, relatively uh, low level of description, let's say the level of molecular biology is entirely appropriate. Um, but already once we turn to uh, the investigation of organisms um, as uh, larger macrosystems, uh, it's uh, much less clear that we'd want to understand um, the um, uh, uh, behavior of, of organisms in their entirety at the level of the underlying cells, let alone uh, particles that, that make up those organisms. And you can keep going like this. I mean, you gave the example of inflation. If we're trying to um, understand and explain um, how the economy works and um, why inflation uh, goes up and down depending on how the interest rate changes, um, of course, it would be a total mistake uh, to um, use the level of description of particle physics and uh, investigate the physical properties of the elementary particles making up the economy. Um, rather, uh, you'd want to look at certain macro patterns and regularities. And if you uh, look at a level of description that is uh, too microscopic or too um, uh, fine-grained, you're not going to see the forest uh, for all the trees. Um, 
And um, my claim is that uh, it is like this uh, in relation to phenomena such as agency and uh, free will as well. You, broadly speaking, you can uh, think about um, human beings um, as um, very complex um, biological or biophysical systems. That's sort of one way to look at them. Um, a very different way to look at human beings is to think of them as um, intentional agents with uh, cognitive and psychological uh, states um, uh, and uh, with um, uh, all sorts of patterns and regularities at the psychological level that uh, affect and influence and shape their behavior. And then of course, there are many intermediate ways in which we can uh, think about human beings and um, free will and its prerequisites properties such as intentional in, intentionality or um, uh, choice making between alternative possibilities or mental causation, uh, those um, uh, would, would remain completely invisible or hidden from view if you adopted uh, the very low level microscopic perspective uh, that you know, focuses on uh, cells or neurons and uh, their um, physical features uh, in order to, to see those uh, properties such as intentional agency or choice, uh, you need to adopt um, the more non-reductionistic perspective and uh, think of humans as, uh, as intentional agents. And, and now, of course, you, um, you know, one might say, uh, you know, science, if we look at the history of science, uh, we can see some kind of trend towards reductionism. And you are absolutely right to point out that in, in many areas of science, uh, a, a somewhat reductionistic perspective has been congenial. You gave these uh, examples from, from, from medicine. I, I think that is undeniable. Um, but at the same time, um, uh, there, there are also a good number of um, phenomena that we would not adequately um, uh, describe and explain uh, if we insisted uh, only on a very reductionistic perspective. And here I think uh, you can give some kind of in indispensability argument for a more non-reductionistic perspective. I mean, the economy was, was one particularly striking example where the non-reductive perspective is just explanatorily indispensable. But likewise, I would be inclined to argue uh, if we want to understand um, human behavior in its uh, richness um, and uh, great flexibility, then um, uh, viewing humans as intentional agents with a rich psychology rather than just viewing them as conglomerates of um, uh, molecules, body parts, neurons, and so on, uh, is also uh, entirely explanatorily indispensable. So while I, I was very persuaded by, by this argument in your book, and I was very impressed with it, I still felt you were just shifting the, the, the place where the causality problem is. The causality problem is no longer at the level of atoms and molecules, but even if as a family therapist you're explaining why this person does this behavior now by their disturbed childhood or by the interactions they're having with their mother or father, you are still producing a causal explanation that takes away the notion of free will. Free will as a variable, it seems to me inevitably gets squeezed out when you start doing science. It doesn't matter the level at which you do science, even if you're doing it at the level of society, you're doing sociology, you're still coming up with causality which says the reason why this person made this decision to drink can be referred back to various variables. The variables aren't atoms and molecules. The variables may be a disturbed childhood or a culture that encourages drinking, but there's still determinism in there, as it were. 
um, you're just shifting where the determinism is. What, what, what's your response to that point? Yes, I mean, on the one hand, I of course agree um, that um, explanations of human behavior um, also make use of uh, causal reasoning, and it's entirely appropriate to ask um, questions about the, the causes of behavior. And indeed, um, uh, I just earlier made this point um, that some form of causal control over our actions is actually even a necessary condition um, for, for free will. Um, so I accept this. At the same time, um, I uh, do not um, accept the view that um, as soon as you engage in uh, causal explanations of some aspects of human behavior, of so, some factors constraining or shaping human behavior, you are thereby um, automatically uh, crowding out um, uh, free will or the possibility of free will. Uh, rather, here is um, what, what I would um, uh, suggest. Um, as soon as you view someone, a person, as um, a choice-making agent, um, someone who is capable of, of, of making choices, um, you are uh, at that point already attributing uh, to them the capacity to choose between different alternative possibilities. And um, you are then viewing them as a um, system uh, that at some level of description, I call this the agential level, uh, is not fully deterministic. That is to say, you attribute to them um, forks in the road, so to speak, at which at least in principle, they could do one thing or they could do another thing, even though they might be predisposed in the direction of one thing and against the direction of, um, of the other. Let me give you a concrete example. Um, so um, I personally uh, drink no alcohol. Um, and now each time I um, go into, let's say, a bar or a pub or a cafe or whatever, and um, I have to make a choice between different uh, drinks on the menu, um, there might be beer and there might be tea and there might be lemonade and so on. I mean, you can uh, predict uh, very, very reliably that I'm going to choose the non-alcoholic drink. Um, but, uh, and, and of course you can then also, you know, maybe try to give a causal explanation or you can say, well, this is because of a particular um, pattern of preferences that I have and so on. Um, at the same time, um, uh, when I make this choice, I still face a genuine choice. So uh, it would be incorrect uh, to say that it would be impossible for me to choose the alcoholic beverage. It just so happens that I um, disprefer it and for, these, for this reason quite reliably do not choose it, but that's not the same uh, as saying that the choice isn't there in the first place. And my, um, my thesis is that um, unless we, um, view humans as choice-making agents, um, we are uh, in very great difficulty in even beginning to explain and understand uh, human behavior. So a sort of the absolute prerequisite for making sense of human behavior is that we view people as choice-making uh, agents. And it's only against that background presupposition uh, that even these explanations where we appeal to certain um, reasons behind people's choices begin to make sense. You know, when you say that I can make a genuine choice between different options, then it makes sense to ask, you know, what was uh, 
Christian's reason for choosing one thing rather than another. Um, whereas if you took the view that um, forks in the road, choice nodes, as we say in decision theory, never arise, um, uh, the, the, the whole idea of trying to give, for instance, reason-based explanations of those choices uh, just, uh, just collapses. I mean, then we'd no longer be explaining human choices by appeal to reasons, but we'd then uh, be thinking of humans just as sort of mechanical systems on the model of a clockwork. And, um, uh, and uh, experience tells us that uh, that's a good way to understand the workings of, for instance, the solar system, but it's not a good way to understand uh, human psychology and and behavior. Okay, so I like your example. I'm gonna I'm gonna um, uh, attack your argument a little bit using your example. So you walk into a bar every night. You choose every night, twenty nights in a row, not to drink. But you are each time telling me you have a free choice to drink or not drink. You're an intentional agent, and as the barman approaches, you make the free will decision not to drink. Then on the 99th night. Um, you suddenly report to me last night, I had a drink of alcohol, okay? As a psychiatrist, I'm thinking, hmm, did this decision just come out of the blue? Or was there a reason why on the 99th night or the 100th night, you suddenly decided to drink? And I probe, I said, what happened? And this ha often happens in psychiatry and psychology when people are discussing a behavior. And you happen to mention, apologies, I'm, I'm gonna use a terrible example, but just go with me. You met this very attractive woman and she uh, encouraged you to have a drink and that's why you had the drink, maybe. Now, it seems to me, all, when you intentionally make the decision to have the drink in this example, I can now refer back to a causal agency to do with the desirabilities as attractive women. Apologies for the um, terrible, politically incorrect nature of my example. Um, so I, I can explain why you suddenly decided to have a drink when you normally don't have a drink by referring back to other variables. Now, I agree that had you met an attractive woman and was suddenly torn, but still decided not to have a drink. Um, there's a sense in which um, intentional agency is involved, but the fact you're under slightly more pressure and had a tougher decision explains that variables are in play which influence you. And generally speaking, in psychology and psychiatry, it is never the case we ever write things up and go, this event just happened. This man just decided to have a drink. We write it up and we say, this happened, he was tired, he was hungry, he was under stress et cetera, et cetera. And this is happening all the time. So going back to your example, if suddenly out of the blue, you suddenly decide to have a drink, when you, a hundred times before you never had a drink, we never just say that just happened, that you just decided out of the blue. We always tend, and even human beings, non-professionals, refer back to a previous state of affairs that explain the sudden bucking of the trend. I hope I'm not making complete philosophical nonsense by that argument, but over to you. Yeah, I think your example um, helps me to uh, clarify, I think, one important uh, point about free will. So having free will doesn't uh, mean that you make decisions completely out of the blue and that um, uh, just as a kind of, uh, you know, random fluke, you could do this or that without uh, any reason or cause behind it in a way that is perhaps even inexplicable. Um, in, in fact, if um, our uh, choices were like this, um, then uh, that would actually also put pressure on the idea of free will, because then we'd not be making intentional choices, but in, in a sense, we, we would be uh, randomizers. Um, and uh, that, in, in fact, the, the thought that um, 
uh, our choice making is just like uh, coin tossing, uh, uh, that's actually you know, just as bad for the idea of free will as, as, uh, as, as the thought that uh, our choices are sort of completely mechanically predetermined. So for this reason, um, um, making a free choice uh, is not the same as uh, making uh, a choice that is completely uncaused or that is completely inexplicable or that is completely in some kind of vacuum, unconstrained or unshaped by any background uh, reasons or, or, or factors. Um, rather, um, in very many cases where we make choices, um, we actually have... Um, uh, very clear preferences or beliefs or intentions or values or goals in the background uh, that um, uh, quite easily steer us in one direction rather than another or where just a little bit of deliberation helps us make, make up our mind quite conclusively in favor of one thing rather than uh, an, another thing. And um, I mean, I would uh, suggest that in, in fact, the vast majority, I and mean, we make choices all the time, but the vast majority of, of our choices that we make in our daily lives are of this kind of very um, uh, automatic and, and quick sort. And, uh, uh, choice making becomes only salient to us in those situations where they um, are a bit more overt and require explicit deliberation and, and, and so on. So um, the fact that you know, circumstances change and some new factors come up that uh, you know, change your preferences or desires in a particular situation and that therefore um, make one course of action more attractive to you than another and therefore sort of lead you to choose in a different way than you did in, in the past, that in itself uh, doesn't remove free will. I mean, after all, you are still making a, a choice between different options. Um, it is still the case that you're an intentional agent. Uh, you still could have done otherwise. And um, the intention that you formed uh, in the relevant situation against the appropriate background factors uh, was the difference making um, cause of, of, of your action. And, and so for this reason, I, I think um, the um, example that, that, that you describe um, doesn't really challenge the, the, the idea of, of, of free will. So a free choice is not the same as uh, an um, inexplicable choice. I think that's a kind of important point to emphasize. Okay, but this lends me to another idea, which is it seems to me that one of the problems with thinking about free will is to think of it as a category. You either have free will or you don't have free will. When many psychologists who are attracted to dimensional views of the world would say it's a dimensional construct. So if you're very, very tired late at night and falling asleep, at that moment, your free will or ability to stay awake or make decisions is very constrained by the biochemistry of sleep. So at that moment, you don't have a huge amount of free will. When you're wide awake in the early morning, um, you have more free will. Let's put it that way. I mean, again, this may be philosophical. Um, uh, 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 I maybe could make many philosophical crimes with this argument. Um, and, and things that lend themselves to more free will is deliberation, more deliberation as opposed to reflexive decisions, and also being aware of more choices. And again, it's a really interesting element of cognitive behavioral therapy a very important part of therapy is to generate choices that people tend to um, fly into a rage or have a drink because they, they lack imagination, are constrained by reflexively only ever having one or two choices in difficult situations. So a large part of cognitive behavioral therapy is getting people to generate many other options and then choose the option. 
And it seems to me that it's slap bang in the middle of trying to create more free will. Um, and another element of that, which is not quite related to that point, but linked to it, is when you go into a bar and, and you, you approach someone to talk to them and they rebuff you, and the conclusion you come to, and this is a pathology that lies at the heart of much psychiatric disorder, is that they hate me and I'm useless. Well, there are other possibilities. Maybe they were busy or preoccupied, et cetera, et cetera. So generating possibilities in your head is a large part of certain kinds of therapy and it seems to me lend themselves to the idea that free will could be a dimensional construct and actually an important part of mental health. Um, people feel suicidal when they feel imprisoned um, by a bullying boss, let's say. So there is a mental health element to the notion of, of, of free will. So um, does that make philosophical, is that philosophical nonsense to think about free will as a possible dimensional idea and we could actively create more free will in our lives? Uh, over to you. Uh, no, this is not. Uh, no, uh, this isn't nonsense at all. Uh, to, to the contrary, the um, the picture of free will that I um, uh, develop in my book uh, is is very much consistent with viewing free will um, in this dimensional way. I mean, for a start, um, as I um, explained earlier. I take free will to require these three things, intentional agency, alternative possibilities, and causal control over one's actions. And so you can already see that um, uh, these um, uh, properties or capacities uh, can be present to a greater or lesser extent in, in someone, maybe depending on circumstances, depending on uh, the time, depending on background conditions, and so on and so on. Um, uh, and so, um, if you um, uh, uh, apply these ideas, for instance, in the context of um, psychiatry, or perhaps also in the context of the um, of, of of the criminal law, where you're trying to assess um, uh, someone's degree of responsibility for something they did, um, you can then uh, use this. Um, a threefold uh, scheme uh, to uh, very precisely ask questions about uh, what exactly were their um, agential capacities and in what respects were their capacities for intentional agency either present or perhaps compromised and why were they compromised. Uh, secondly, you can ask uh, to what extent um, did they have the ability to choose between alternative possibilities? Might there have been uh, certain uh, cognitive constraints that um, uh, made uh, alternative, some alternative possibilities uh, unavailable to them in their deliberative process and that therefore constrains uh, their, their choice making. And then finally, you can also ask to, to what extent uh, was their capacity for causal control over their actions present and, um, or, or, or compromised. And suppose someone is, um, you know, let's say intoxicated, uh, then uh, it's it's uh, it's evident that that might also um, have a compromising effect on um, uh, someone's um, capacity for mental causation. Uh, to to give just one example, so for for this reason, I think this dimensional picture uh, uh, where you can uh, focus on multiple dimensions of of free will. In the case of my own theory, these these three dimensions uh, makes makes a lot of sense and and could be quite useful uh, as a um, kind of ta taxonomic device uh, in the context of psychology or psychiatry, but also in the context of responsibility ascriptions. And um, 
Another way in which I think this is really practically very relevant, there's a very obscure, but I think very interesting bit of research that finds that when people are encouraged to try and do things differently on a daily basis, um, it increases their, their happiness. So um, if you take the same route to work every day, let's say you walk to work and you have, have a preferred route, if you're asked by the psychologist to vary the route to work every day, do a, take a slightly different route, there is evidence that you're actually happier as a result of that. And I think that's slap bang in the way in the middle of the free will debate, that it's practically a very important idea that we, if we have it, that we exercise it as opposed to having it and not exercising it. But we're running out of time and you've been very indulgent in the length of time we've taken. I wanna just talk finally a little bit about the practical importance of free will. Uh, philosophy, um, which I think is a very important subject, um, has unfortunately um, garnered a reputation for being about things that aren't relevant to people's day-to-day -day lives. Yet this free will debate is an excellent example of something that I think is relevant, not just to everyone's day-to-day -day life, but almost everyone's day-to-day -day moment of existence. Um, what are your thoughts about, I mean, you've written this book, which I think is very readable to the non the non-philosophically technically um, uh, proficient person, the average reader, the general reader can read this and, and understand it, that, that philosophy has um, uh, been about subjects that are increasingly not about everyday life, whereas the free will debate is about everyday life and is very important for every person to have some sense of. What, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, the free will debate, uh, as we already discussed, uh, is very central to our human self-understanding as, as agents, but it's also a very important debate um, for um, um, areas such as uh, the criminal law, also the civil law, where notions uh, such as responsibility are really quite, quite central. And um, uh, given that so many um, human practices in, in our societies are uh, very much based on the idea that uh, we are autonomous, responsible uh, agents who can also be held accountable for their decisions. Uh, it's, it's quite crucial that we figure out uh, whether um, we can really defend this notion of free will um, uh, against the background of a scientific worldview or whether um, this is some kind of big uh, mistake or illusion that, that, that we cling to. So for this reason, I, uh, I would entirely agree that this is an, uh, an area of philosophy that is of, of huge significance for everyday life, but also for some of the neighboring sciences and social sciences and, 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 and the law. But I would uh, insist that um, there are you know, quite a few areas of philosophy that um, can provide uh, very important insights uh, for not just for everyday life, but also for, um, for neighboring sciences and social sciences. I mean, if you think about um, philosophical debates uh, concerning the nature and status of, of human consciousness. Again, that's uh, one of those issues that uh, is relevant uh, to, to so many different areas, uh, you know, ranging from psychology and psychiatry to welfare economics, to artificial intelligence, uh, if we look at uh, of, uh, recent developments. And so, I, I mean, personally, I, I think, uh, um, you know, philosophy uh, can provide um, you know, useful um, insights for a whole variety of different uh, debates. And, you know, for this reason, I'd also, uh, you know, like there to be more dialogue between philosophers and, uh, uh, you know, practitioners of, of, of other disciplines, um, as, as well as the general public, of course. Okay, so one final, final point. I know I keep saying that, but um, 
one of the things that's I think really interesting about the tension over the free will debate is while our folk intuition is that we have free will as we as we consciously journey through life and make decisions like having coffee or tea, um, there's also a very strong tendency in a way not to want to have free will in terms of the responsibility that comes with it. So let's take a classic example. People arrive in the clinic, they're overweight, they want to lose weight. You explain to them how to lose weight, which is they're gonna to have to exercise more. It's not rocket science and they're gonna to have to eat less. And what's fascinating, and you see this with all forms of human psychopathology, psychological problems, is people explain why they're in trouble by not referring to them making decisions that land them in trouble, but other things. Oh, it's my genes, doc, or it's my terrible childhood explains why I do this thing. In other words, there's a very strong tendency when it comes to the human predicament to not take responsibility for your life. And it's actually painful to accept the fact you have free will and you could freely choose not to eat that cream blancmange, but you keep making bad choices and you should take responsibility for that. Do, in a way, we're getting into almost politics here. Do, do you think that there's actually a powerful psychological reason at some level why people don't want to examine free will too closely because of the slightly um, uh, robust implications for, for them and not being able to blame other agencies for bad decisions they make in their life? Over to you. Well, my, my sense is still, I, 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 I uh, and, and take your comments, but my, my sense is still that um, the intuition that at least in principle, we have the capacity to uh, make free choices um, is uh, really much stronger than the intuition that um, there is no such thing as, as, as free will. I mean, it, it, it might be that uh, in, in some situations, people don't, uh, uh, want to take responsibility for for, for their actions, um, but uh, at the same time, I mean, as I already mentioned, um, if you um, uh, run surveys uh, of uh, people's uh, intuitions about uh, human choice making, uh, then the sort of free will skeptical uh, position that uh, you know we discussed in relation to some popular science writings, uh, that's. Uh, you know, by no means the, the you know, mainstream and widely spread view in society. And I think some um, uh, psychologists or um, also experimental philosophers who run surveys um, think that um, if um, people uh, were led to think that they have no free will, it would somehow significantly reduce or compromise their um, motivations to, to, to take initiative or to um, you know, make morally engaged choices and so on. I mean, that's at the end of the day, an empirical question for, for psychology that, that, uh, that, that I can't, uh, can't settle. Um, but my general feeling is that um, uh, if um, it were established that there is no such thing as free will, which, which I don't think is the right conclusion, but if, if that were established, um, that uh, would put a much greater pressure um, on the um, human self-understanding of our uh, condition of human life uh, than the uh, finding that free will can indeed be scientifically vindicated, which I think is the correct conclusion. Okay, um, thank you very much indeed for your time. Um, we, we ran way over time, but, but, but it was a fascinating conversation. So um, uh, thank you very much, Professor Christian List. Um, the title of the book again, Why Free Will is Real, and it's published by Harvard University Press. Uh, Professor Christian List, thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much.